welcome to PT Snacks Podcast. This is Casey, and if you're joining us for the very first time, what you need to know about this podcast is that it's meant for physical therapists and physical therapist students who are basically looking to grow yourselves and grow your fundamentals in your practice, but also have time to like, you know, live life outside of your career. So last week, we had an amazing interview with Dr. Sean Harris on mentorship and bears with that. So if you are a mentor, mentee looking for that relationship, definitely go back and check that out. But for today, we're actually just going to go back to talking about the body itself. So today we're focusing in on the hip. What makes that up? What are the motions that it goes through? And how does that apply to the different types of hip replacement surgeries that are actually out there? So with that being said, let's get started. So in the hip, we have a ball and socket joint that moves in sagittal, frontal, and transverse planes. But if you look at like the average range of motion measurements that are in each plane, you're definitely going to notice that there's way more in the sagittal plane, which makes sense, right? When we are traveling from place to place, we typically go forward in the sagittal plane. We're not walking sideways. We're not turning around like a little tornado um, unless you're six. Or if you do that now, I won't judge you, but the average person is moving the sagittal plane. And they also notice, oh wait, we have way more flexion than the other ranges of motion. But think about, you know, day to day, we need to be able to sit, right? We need to be able to bend forward, put on our shoes, get out the door, etc. So these are just important things to keep in mind for, hey, if I, my patient's limited in their range of motion, what are things that are, you know, practical that are being limited And then also, I just think it's cool to think about how the body operates. So that's the hip joint itself. So the hip joint is made up of the articulation between the femoral head and the acetabulum. So the acetabulum, that sounds like a big fancy word for basically a a cup-shaped socket. And that's actually formed or fused between the ilium, ischium, and pubis. So we've got the cup-shaped socket, which in the socket is acetabulum. And then we've got the ball, which is the head of the femur. We've also actually got the labrum, which forms a rim of circumferential collagen fibers around the acetabulum, which is really cool because what it does is it deepens the hip socket. So it increases stability. And then it it helps to basically transmit load across the joint. So it's not just collecting in one area. And it also provides negative intraarticular pressure. So There's a balance between mobility and stability, kind of like the shoulder, right? But in the hip joint, we load a little bit more of our body weight on it. So stability is a little bit more important rather than in the shoulder where we need it to manipulate things around us or reach for things, put our clothes on, put our shirts on, that kind of stuff, right? So if we're talking about the arthrokinematics of the joint, this is just talking about basically how does the hip joint move? And something important to keep in mind is the convex concave rule. So with this rule, if the moving surface, we're talking about like two joints together, the the bone that's moving, if this is convex, then it that joint is going to roll and glide in the opposite direction. If the moving surface is concave, it's going to roll and glide in the same direction. So Let's take, for example, a concave acetabulum and a convex femoral head. So if the femoral head is the moving surface, let's say you're going to pick your leg up. You're you're laying on the mat 
and you're drawing your knee into your chest. When you go up into flexion, there's going to be a little bit more of like a posterior inferior glide. Or you're laying on your stomach, aka prone, and you're raising up your leg behind you into extension. There's going to be an anterior glide. So that's the arthrochromatics of the hip. Why does this even matter? Well, an important thing for the surgeries is there are particular reasons why we have precautions. We're trying to help to protect that joint and make sure it heals appropriately and not stress something that shouldn't be stressed. So if you understand the hip arthrokinematics, depending on the different approach that is used in the surgery that your patient is going through, you're going to understand why certain movements are more so protected in the beginning than others in a total hip replacement. Okay. And we'll go over that more in a a second, but in a total hip replacement, Basically, what's being done is the head of the femur is replaced with the prosthetic head on a shaft, and then the joint surface of the acetabulum is lined with a bowl-shaped synthetic joint surface. And there's a lot of different materials that have been moved in the past. We're not going to go over this in this episode because that's like a whole separate episode. But they're going to use a total hip replacement for things like hip fractures, osteoporosis, osteomalacia. And when they are doing a surgery, there's there's several things that that the surgeons have to take into account. So when you're looking at the patient, if they have a relatively normal hip anatomy, you're trying to restore that. So you're taking into account what their age is, their gender, okay, what's the femoral neck angle or the femoral neck offset, that kind of thing. This is different for someone who maybe has an abnormal hip anatomy, like a cam and pincher impingement. A lot of times these kind of things are automatically corrected in the surgery itself. But there's a lot of different approaches that are out there and what they use for these different approaches just depends on surgeon preference, what incisions they were before that, if they're obese, what the risk of dislocation is, the implant selection, and then also just the degree of deformity. Everything just depends on what would work best for the patient, essentially. So there's a lot of approaches out there. There's the posterior approach, posterior lateral direct lateral, anterior lateral, and direct anterior. With the posterior, this is going to be the most common. It's also known as the more southern approach. Basically what they're doing is they're just going to split the fascia lata and the gluteus maximus in line with the fibers, and then they're just going to basically try and uncover the short external rotators of the hip so that they can dissect them off the femur and then retract them back over the sciatic nerve. And that is to help protect the nerve. And then they're going to do a capsulotomy and to basically dislocate the hip so that they can put the new pieces back in and put the total hip replacement back in. Now, if you're thinking about where the incision is and you understand the hip arthrokinematics, it may make sense why the precautions are no flexion past 90 degrees, no extreme internal rotation, and no adduction past the body midline. Okay, so Think about like someone sitting in a director's chair where your knees kind of knock inward. That's kind of a no-no early on in this surgery. So more on like, okay, the direct lateral, the hardinge is also another name for it. They're going to split the fascia lata and get to the gluteus medius. Um, but things that the surgeon has to look out for are, okay, the superior gluteal nerve is kind of close in that area. In fact, it enters into the gluteal medius muscle belly about three to five centimeters proximal to the greater trochanter. And keep in mind, everybody has slight variances in their anatomy, so you just never know patient to patient. So while in this one, it has one of the lowest dislocation rates, 
it can lead to a post-option Dellenberg gait in these patients if you sever that nerve. Another approach is anterolateral or the Watson-Jones, and this is actually one of the least popular, mainly because you're disrupting that hip abductor mechanism, and that can lead to a lump, right? But you're still trying to avoid extension, extreme external rotation, adduction pass, body midline. Now, with the direct anterior, this is like the Smith-Peterson is another word for it. You're making an incision between the tensor fascia lata and the sartorius on the superficial end and the gluteus medius and the rectus femoris on the deep side. So you're going to be trying to avoid things like bridging, extension, extreme external rotation, and adduction past body midline. So this is just a brief, brief, brief review over several types of options that are out there. And there's definitely more information there, but these are things that I want you to think about when you are studying anatomy on like, why does this matter? How can I apply this to my patient population? Right? So hopefully by the end of this, you have a good understanding of like what the hip joint is, the arthrokinematics of the hip, and then some examples of a total hip arthroplasty. So as always, let me know if you have any questions. You can always reach out at PT Snacks Podcast on Instagram or ptsnackspodcast at gmail.com or check out my website at ptsnackspodcast.com. I love hearing from you guys. So if you also have suggestions on, hey, why don't we cover this in the future? I'm all ears and we'll get to that as soon as we can. Other than that, hopefully this makes sense. Again, the point of this is to be helpful and concise. But if you haven't already, do me a favor and go ahead and hit subscribe so that you don't miss out on any episodes in the future. And then until next time. Thank you.